The following episode contains subject matter that may be triggering for some people, including non-graphic mentions of murder, suicide, racism, abuse, or sexual assault, and may contain foul language. This episode is presented in as accurate a manner as possible for educational purposes with the intention of raising awareness of the cases mentioned. It is not intended to make accusations, only to point out data patterns. If you have information on any of these cases, please contact Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477, or visit canadiancrimestoppers.org to submit a tip electronically. Don't stay silent. Your information might save a life. In some missing person circles, the term throwaway children is a tragic moniker given to youth from high-risk environments. For them, the foster care system is a revolving door of abuse. They often run away from group homes, foster parents, or biological parents, and minor offenses like loitering can turn into a laundry list of run-ins with police. These can be anything from petty theft to failure to appear at parole hearings or provide certain paperwork upon request. From here, things usually escalate to drug offenses and homelessness is often a problem for these kids. A shocking percentage of them are Native. In many cases, no one is looking for these kids. No one is checking up on them. Their parents may be unwilling or unable to look after them. In order to survive, they engage in risky and often illegal behavior from stealing money and food to sleeping rough, engaging in sex work in order to afford motel rooms and food, and frequently becoming addicted to drugs, either recreationally, through a pimp, or just to escape the stress of their lives. In some cases, this may lead to more violent criminal behavior. Too often, these kids end up dead or in prison. In this two-part series, we're going to look at three examples of these so-called throwaway children. They all had parents or guardians who were looking for them. They were all engaged in high-risk activities. Two of them disappeared from the same city and may have fallen victim to the same predator. But first, let's look at the story of Ramona Lisa Wilson, whom the police dismissed when she was first reported missing. Ramona came from a fairly stable background. She wasn't a runaway, and she didn't do drugs. She lived with her mother and five siblings in Smithers, BC, which I'm starting to think is cursed based on the number of times I've had to talk about it. Smithers is about four hours from Prince George on Highway 16, about halfway between it and Prince Rupert. Geographically, these towns aren't terribly close, but I want to use these three cases for illustration purposes since they happened in quick succession in June, July, and December of the same year. It's a small town where everyone knows everyone. In 1994, the graduation rate among Indigenous students was an abysmal 24%. Ramona was an oops baby, an unexpected but most welcome surprise seven years younger than the next Wilson child. With four brothers and an older sister, she was doted on by all of her siblings, but especially her eldest sister, Brenda, who had prayed for a baby sister. 
a widow, Ramona's mother, Matilda, raised her children on her own. All of her kids worked hard, but by the time Ramona was 14, she had something to prove. She played baseball for a local team and washed dishes at a local diner. Unlike her siblings, she was determined to beat that 24% graduation rate and attended the University of Victoria to study psychology. Always a willing ear for those around her, what Ramona wanted most was to help people. This isn't to say that she enjoyed school, however, as she was repeatedly admonished for poor attendance and skipping school. She'd much rather get coffee with a friend at the diner across the street from the high school than actually go inside to attend classes. This was actually how she and her best friend Crystal started hanging out. Crystal had been in Ramona's life for years, hanging out with one of her brothers. But after an afternoon spent at the Aspen Inn restaurant, they became inseparable. Ramona was a good influence on her wayward friend. A partier who had spent time in juvie, Crystal started spending quiet nights with Ramona, walking along the river, talking about the big questions. They smoked an occasional joint, but didn't dabble in harder drugs. Ramona liked to write poetry and was extremely spiritual, hoping to reconnect with the native practices that had been torn from her family by the residential school system when her mother was just a child. The loss of their children to the schools had emotionally destroyed her grandparents, and the generational, and the generational trauma was still felt. Ramona was the type of person known to help old ladies cross the street, carry shopping bags for them, and opening doors. That summer, she got a job as a peer counselor with the Smithers Community Services Association. Gleefully, she put in her notice at Smitty's Diner. Though she loved her co-workers, this was the first step in her path to becoming a psychologist. Saturday, June 11th was a big day in Smithers, a practically town-wide graduation party. Even students that didn't usually drink would have been in the streets with beers celebrating the end of school. At 16, Ramona wasn't one of the new grads, but she and Crystal still planned to meet at the community hall to party with the others, and talked about going to a party held at a more remote home near the airport. Ramona knew she'd likely be up all night, so after taking a nap, she ate a takeout dinner of pasta with her mother before going to get dressed and packing an overnight bag. Even if they didn't stay all night at the party, she'd probably end up sleeping over at Crystal's. After a brief phone call, she set out at 9.30 to meet with Crystal, saying a quick goodbye to her mom. Matilda had no idea that it would be the last time she'd see her baby girl. Friends and neighbors greeted Ramona as she passed through the alley behind their house and up Main Street. Her progress was unhurried and cheerful, but somehow she never made it to the community center. At first, Crystal just thought she had gone ahead of her to the party and then to another party with different friends when they were unable to meet up as planned. This was unusual, but not especially worrying for Crystal. In the time before cell phones, plans changed and friends often missed each other coming and going. Ramona did have other friends she might have been with. Her boyfriend lived in Morristown a few miles away, along with some of their other friends. Maybe she decided to hang out with them. Besides, Ramona had four brothers looking out for her. She was self-assured and not the type to be pushed around. She never let anyone get away with things that made her uncomfortable. Ramona was the responsible one, the one who knew exactly where she was going and how she was going to get there. It wasn't until Sunday morning that Crystal thought something must be wrong. Ramona's boyfriend called to find out where she was, confirming that she hadn't gone to Morristown after all. 
With the hairs on the back of her neck prickling, she met up with the boyfriend and the two drove over to Ramona's. Crystal hid in the car while he went up to the front door. Matilda confirmed that her daughter was staying with Crystal. Next, they tried Smitty's, but she wasn't there and her next shift wasn't until the following day. Reluctantly, Crystal let things sit for another day. After all, this was Ramona they were talking about. She wasn't the type to just vanish. When Ramona wasn't at school, Crystal double-checked Smitty's again. Ramona never showed up for her shift. At that point, in near panic, Crystal called Matilda and told her to call the RCMP immediately, spilling the entire story. Just a few years before, Crystal's other friend, Delphine Nickel, had also disappeared. The sinking feeling in her stomach was all too familiar. Already missing for three days at that point, the police urged Matilda to, quote, give it some time, saying that her daughter was probably just out partying for a few days and enjoying the start of summer. With the hysterical rage of a worried mom, Matilda insisted that she knew her daughter and this wasn't her. But Ramona's brothers were well known to the police. The family avoided whatever contact they could with the local officers. Indigenous teens in the area tended to hang out around security cameras just so they could prove how aggressive the police were in targeting them. The fact that Matilda had even gone to the RCMP was a mark of how terrified and desperate she was. It would be 11 days before the weekly paper published anything about her disappearance. Matilda and Brenda had drawn in everyone they knew to search, and the RCMP were finally getting involved. But by day 11, they were running out of ideas. When a helicopter search of the surrounding area didn't produce any leads, then it was a last-ditch effort and the latest in a string of dead ends. On July 5th, a third-party agency, the Missing Children's Society of Canada, arrived to help with the search. Normally, it would be months or years before they got involved, sought out by some police in cold case units, but thanks to Delphine Nickel, the society was already familiar with Smithers. Three members of their team and a Louisiana psychic flew out within a month of Ramona's disappearance and set to work searching, canvassing, and coordinating with police and search parties. The psychic pointed them in the direction of the airport, but nothing was found. It wasn't long before the team left. The RCMP insists their search was thorough and complete, but the Williams family disagrees, saying their concerns were not taken seriously. Because the files are not public record, it's impossible to definitively confirm one way or another, but Smithers had been a segregated town to make any Jim Crow state proud only a few decades earlier, and the racism wasn't just in living memory. It was lived every day. The Gatan Miss Band Council put up a $1,000 reward for information, but it wasn't enough to make anyone bat an eye. Matilda and Brenda baked, sewed, beaded, and did everything they could to make raffle prizes or saleable goods to increase the reward, but they barely broke even. At the same time, a missing white girl in the southern part of the province dominated the news. With a $50,000 reward and near-constant news coverage, it wasn't long before her body was found. The news turned to information on her murderer and the multitude of memorials and events organized in support of her and her family. Meanwhile, Ramona was practically forgotten, except by the people who knew her. An unhappy resident called the Missing Children's Society, who then covered an additional $10,000 in reward money, as well as providing posters for a saturation campaign. Family and friends wrote letters to the local paper and reached out to anyone who might help get their message out. 
Poor Crystal communed with her Ouija board, desperate for any news on her missing friend, regardless of where it came from. We know a lot about Ramona as a person, largely because of her mother and sister. Matilda and Brenda worked tirelessly for years to bring her home, arranging searches, marches, benefit dances, and more to raise money for rewards and search resources. Alas, it all came to nothing on April 9th, 1995. Two boys were four-wheeling in the mud just off of Yellich Road. When one of the machines got stuck, they wandered into the woods looking for something to use as a pry bar. In a dense patch of wood and underbrush, they found a nude body, some rope, cable ties, and discarded clothing. Matilda was the first call by the the RCMP, but they couldn't confirm the identity yet. Finally, after comparing dental records, the remains were identified as Ramona. Matilda and her children were asked to visit the RCMP detachment to identify the items found with Ramona. While she was able to confirm the purple sweatshirt and leggings belonged to her daughter, her shoes were missing. Where are her shoes? she asked. The pink high tops were added to the list of items not found at the scene, including her overnight bag. Though the family searched the area where Ramona was found, they never recovered any of her other belongings. Since that day in 1995, there have been no new leads or suspects made public by the RCMP. Officially, her case is still considered open and unsolved. Annually, Matilda and her daughter host a walk down Highway 16 to Yelich Road, a distance of 11 kilometers, to raise awareness for Ramona, Delphine, and the multitude of others who have vanished from the area. If the police had moved faster, if they had responded to a missing child immediately, instead of believing Ramona was just another Indian in a broken home with a single mother who wasn't, quote, doing enough to take care of her, would she still be alive? We may never know. So far, I haven't found any information on her cause of death or even when they think she was killed, other than it was sometime between June 11th, 1994 and April 9th, 1995. The cable ties and yellow nylon rope imply that she was bound and potentially strangled, but again, there hasn't been any confirmation on this. These are just conclusions I'm drawing myself based on the information available. Because she was found with the clothes she went missing in and how long and harsh Canadian winters are, slowing decomposition, it's reasonable to believe that she was killed when or shortly after she was taken and left in the woods over the summer and fall. Reasonable, but not proven. Obviously, there is holdback evidence in this case that the police are using to help them locate the killer. Ramona, along with two victims we will talk about next week, are all EPANA cases, meaning the RCMP has allocated resources to investigate their deaths and things are ongoing. For this reason, I can't critique the lack of available information too harshly, but I can absolutely point out the fact that they should have done more sooner. Finally, I don't want anyone to think poorly of Crystal on this. Smithers was a small town with limited resources in the middle of the woods. Crystal was a teenager when all of this happened and had no reason to think anything bad had happened at first. Even when she was first suspicious, she enlisted help and started calling around subtly on her own, trying to figure out where Ramona might be, thinking they'd just missed each other in passing. And when she knew something was wrong, the first thing she did was come clean to Ramona's mom. Crystal will show up again and again in these cases just because of her proximity to the victims, just as Smithers shows up again and again. 
all she did was make friends with other girls who were in tough places. That's all. Next week, we're going to move further east to look at the remaining cases of 1994 and see the similarities between Ramona's case as well as the differences. Join me as we continue our journey on the Highway of Tears. Ghosts of Highway 16 is a production of Not Magic Studios and is intended for educational purposes and to raise awareness of crime, especially those involving missing and murdered Indigenous women. If you have any information on the cases presented, please contact Crime Stoppers Canada at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477 or visit CanadianCrimeStoppers.org to submit a tip electronically. If you would like more information on this episode or any of the cases presented in this series, please visit 16ghosts.com for photos, sources, and a full transcript of this and every other episode. If you would like to support the podcast, please share it with friends. Any financial contributions should go to the Indigenous charity of your choice. For a list of recommendations, please visit our website. Thank you for listening.